You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. This morning on our segment, The Long View, our contributing political science editor, Neil Milner, gives us a look back at some of the striking events of this past year. Good morning, Neil. Hi, Catherine. So we're talking the Pew Research Center survey today. Yes, the Pew Research Center, which is an internationally acclaimed uh, research operation from the Pew Foundation, uh, does surveys all over the world. And every year, at the end of the year, they they pick the most significant uh, survey findings of the year as far as they're concerned. And this year, because it's 2020, they picked the 20 different ones. Um, not surprisingly, they're different this year from what they've been the last couple of years when I've done a, a segment on this, and they vary, but not by much. This is really very much COVID-driven, but it's COVID-driven in two different kinds of ways. One is uh, certain surveys that have shown the impact of COVID itself, and the other has to do with how things that have been around for a while, like polarization and religious differences, have reflect, have uh, impacted the way people look at COVID. So this is not necessarily brand new, but the, the size of it is really interesting. So if you look at um, the impact of COVID, uh, a couple of uh, a few findings are really interesting. One of which is how another way to see how global this pandemic is is to look at the percentage of people in the world who live in countries that either had um, you know some kind of quarantine, some that, that prevented or limited international travel, or had it all the time. Ninety-one percent of the people in this world live in a place like that. So when you think about a worldwide pandemic, you can think about it in, in, uh, in those kinds of terms that, uh, that that really showed what it was. There's some other kinds of things that are really interested, interesting, but that helps you see the, the significance of the impact. Half the people in the surveys personally know someone who either died or was hospitalized because of COVID half the people in the survey. Um, and, and when you start moving away from those kinds of direct things, you find some other interesting things. Now, because of COVID, and I'll get back to that in a second, the majority of young adults in the United States live with their parents. Um, no comment from the parents at this moment. But let's say young adults relatively 18 to 25. 52% of young adults in the United States now live with their parents. Now, what was happening is this has been increasing over a number of years, kind of gradually, um, partly because of affordability of housing, all those kinds of things. In six months, starting in February, it jumped from 47% to 52%. In other words, a big bump just because of, of, uh, of COVID. And Almost half the people in the country uh, say that either they were laid off or they lost their job or they knew others that were, that were done. So what that does is, again, to reinforce what we know or what we suspected about COVID, um, you know, the, the impact. But it does it in ways that I think are, are pretty compelling. And I am particularly intrigued by the, the, the movement of young adults in, 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 into the houses, for example. So that's, that's the side that speaks to COVID's impact, okay? The other part of it is um, how long-term factors like polarization particularly um, show up in people's responses to COVID. Now, the first thing to understand here about polarization is the fact, uh, is the extent to which polarization exists. And in fact, now, uh, people who study this are not even talking about polarization anymore. They're talking about political sectarianism, and I'll explain the difference in a second. But it comes down to this. In the surveys that they've done, 80% of the Democrats think that Republicans do not share the core uh, American values that the Democrats say. And 80% of Republicans say that the Democrats don't share the core values with them. In other words, you have high majorities of both, uh, of both Democratic voters and Republican voters who say essentially the other side is, uh, in a sense, un-American. And that is uh, another example of the movement from polarization to what gets called political sectarianism, where you don't even, it's not a policy difference anymore. 
It's a difference in believing that the other side has decent moral values or that the other side is even human. It's like two, uh, two alternative universes. So you see some of that showing up in the differences in the, in the uh, COVID virus responses, but now you can appreciate, now you can begin to see how it isn't just the COVID virus response. We've seen polarization on any kind of political issue uh, over the last five to ten years, and it's, it's certainly true on COVID. From, from the get-go, Democrats were much more likely to see this as a, uh, to see COVID as a serious issue than the Republicans. Way back in April, 83% of Democratic voters saw it that way. 44% of Republican voters saw it that way. And that kind of difference has continued has continued to exist. Well, I think you, you just look at the uh, wearing of masks, right? I mean, you, you look at rallies uh, yes. where the Republicans are at, and, and a lot of them aren't wearing masks or they aren't socially distanced, and you go to Democratic... Uh, party rallies, and it's, you know, the opposite. Yep, that's true. Stark. And if you're around Republican states and uh, in, in Democratic states, that's that's more likely to be true. I have a friend who came back to Hawaii from being in Idaho for six months, and he said the difference is there immediately. Now, I, so there are two things about that, one of which is mask wearing has become a political issue. It partly became a political issue, maybe, maybe, because the president made it a political issue. But if you consider the kinds of differences uh, that already existed on science and on the seriousness of the diseases, it was, it was fertile territory. The, the other thing to understand is a word of caution about that, that not all mask non-wearing is manifestly political. You know, I know, we see people all the time who just don't wear them. They're not necessarily making a big fuss about them, or maybe they're in a crowded household, they take it off, and, and so on. But the fundamental thing is how much now this has become um, um, this has become another issue that dramatically changes, uh, uh, dramatically polarizes the um, the issue of, of COVID. And one other thing that just as a word of caution or understanding, this is not something that a new president can simply turn around by talking about healing. Now, you know, I think Joe Biden is doing a lot of good stuff and how he's, real, how he's um, rethinking the response that the national government has to have toward, uh, toward COVID, which I think is absolutely necessary. But remember that you're operating in this very locked-in uh, situation where um, – where you have, uh, you know, where you have an effect. Very different parties thinking of that way, and the, and the, the Pew thing is just another indicator of that. Well, yeah, I mean, I I, I think uh, you know, uh, President-elect uh, Joe Biden uh, is going to have to really eat a double helping of Wheaties every day uh, because he just has some serious challenges going uh, going yeah. forward. And and we have to remember how deep those challenges are. Um, that. What some people call healing is really a misunderstanding and a kind of uh, overly optimistic word about what the challenges are that that uh, the new political regime uh, has to deal with. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've got the issues of QAnon, you've got the issues of uh, Black Lives Matter that's still, you know, simmering. Yeah, Black Lives Matter, they picked that as another significant part of the survey, where uh, the surveys, the extent to which people supported Black Lives Matter and the extent to which Black Lives Matter became a powerful issue that people wanted to lower about. It set records. The, the, the phrase Black, like rat, Black Lives Matter set, according to the polls that I'm talking about here, set a record for the most uh, hits on Twitter. And so you have, you, know, you have that kind of stuff. And QAnon, which is you know, a very odd conspiratorial uh, theory organization, Half the Republicans uh, who knew about it thought it was okay, and half did not. And that's very different from how Democrats and independents responded to what they thought QAnon was. They, both of those groups were much more negative. Right. So if 2020 was bad, 2021 will be interesting. <laughs> uh, it will be an adventure for sure. All right. Okay. Thanks so much. You're Neil. welcome. Take care. That was political scientist Neil Milner, contributing editor of our biweekly segment, The Longview, here on Hawaii Public Radio.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the Homa Shop offering art-inspired gift ideas for the holidays. Proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions also online at shop.honolulumuseum.org. 2020 has been a year like no other. So let's end it on an upbeat note with the Kanikapila Sunday holiday special. You'll hear Hawaiian songs for this season from the Brothers Casimero, Amy Hanayali'i, Kuanatora's Kahele, Uncle Willie Kay, and some classics you haven't heard in a long while. I'm Derek Malama. The Kanikapila Sunday holiday special is this Sunday from 1 to 4 p.m. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from T. Oki Trading, featuring Toto Toilets and Jacuzzi and Bullfrog Hot Tubs and Swim Spas, serving Hawaii for 40 years. Learn more at tokitrading.com. A new report out from the University of Hawaii Medical School found that Native Hawaiians still experience disproportionately higher rates of chronic diseases than the general population in Hawaii. The problem, researchers say, is rooted in historical trauma, discrimination, and lifestyle changes. HBR's Ku'ube Hirishi joins us now with more on the report. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, researchers at the UH John A. Byrne School of Medicine recently released that report on, on the health and well-being of Native Hawaiians, and this is the second of its kind. The first report or assessment on Native Hawaiian health uh, coming out of Jabsum came out about seven years ago in 2013. And uh, as you mentioned, not much has changed in terms of the problem. Uh, so the latest data found Native Hawaiians suffer from uh, coronary heart disease, stroke, heart failure, cancer, and diabetes at a rate three times greater than uh, in other ethnic populations. And so this mirrors uh, many of the findings from that initial report. It makes me sad, though, that, <laughs> you know, it, you get, we would have hoped that there would be some progress made. Exactly. And, and I think um, the way that this report is different uh, from, pa from in the past is really taking that systematic approach to figuring out what is at the root of this inability to really... Uh, get rid of these health disparities for Native Hawaiians. And so it was in an interesting read, a 43-page report, but it lays out uh, historical events uh, that have had an impact on Native Hawaiian health. Uh, so, for example, I, as early as the uh, infectious disease epidemics of the late 1700s and early 1800s, going into the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom and uh, the uh, subsequent loss of land, and, and suppression of the culture and the languages are all factors that the report puts out there to say, you know, perhaps let's look at the results of these historical events and what we can do to stem the tide on them uh, to improve Native Hawaiian health. And so Native Hawaiian health scholar Mele Look, uh, the lead author of the report, says there are emerging practices and approaches to addressing health equity for Native Hawaiians that perhaps weren't apparent seven years ago. There has been great strides by many researchers to incorporate the thinking about social determinants of health, about where you live, work, play, learn, all affects your health and how we must approach health that way in a very integrated, comprehensive way. It sounds simple. Uh, she gives the example, uh, which I think a lot of Oahu residents might um, have come across here uh, on the island, but the example uh, of the lack of sidewalks and, and biking lanes over in Waianae. So mm -hmm. a, a, a community or a community with a large population of Native Hawaiians, um, as opposed to other areas on Oahu, I, I thought immediately of Kailua or of Mauna Lua and Hawaii Kai, uh, where there is a lot of opportunity for physical activity on a daily basis. So making simple changes like putting in a biking lane or widening those sidewalks uh, are uh, opportunities that are mentioned in this report to help uh, Native Hawaiians uh, improve their own health. Another proposed solution that was really interesting uh, includes sort of culturally based uh, health interventions. And we had spoken about this before, Catherine, the uh, HULA study, HULA hypertension study. Researchers at UH recently completed this five-year study that used HULA as a health intervention uh, for Native Hawaiians experiencing hypertension. 
to figure out, okay, if we put them in, <clears throat> they used six months, I believe, a six-month program where they took Native Hawaiians who had hypertension and um, put them into a hula program designed uh, by Kumuhula Mapuana de Silva of Halaumohala over here on Oahu to see if it was going to help them. And Kiavi Aimokukaholo Kula, the head of uh, the medical school's Native Hawaiian Health Department, explains the findings of this study. And what we found was that those who were immediately uh, entered into our intervention, our hula-based intervention, uh, significantly improved their blood pressure control and management compared to the control, so much so that uh, on average they dropped two stages and, and the different stages of hypertension, which uh, correlates with severity. Another thing we found, we also looked at was their 10-year risk for cardiovascular disease, those who participated in the Bula intervention dramatically uh, decreased their risk for uh, a heart attack or stroke uh, within the next 10 years. And those are the things we found. That is perhaps the first time that a, a, a cultural practice has been leveraged for health promotion and tested scientifically. As a former hula practitioner myself, I could see how that would help. Yes. It is a physical activity that can be grueling, especially uh, when committed over six-month period. Right? Yeah, hula for health. I mean, you know, <laughs> I know uh, our kumuhula. You know, she says if you can't do this, you know, get get down on your knees, do it from the chair. Right. You know? <laughs> there are ways to to have physical activity incorporated with these cultural practices, and there are other examples in this report of culturally based or culturally grounded health interventions that perhaps um, we should be investing in when it comes to Native Hawaiians in particular. Uh, but this study, the Hula Hypertension Study, did get the attention, uh, that get national attention from the American Heart Association, which published the study in its journal in 2019. Uh, just last month, an association uh, spokesman actually uh, tells me that uh, the association sent a presidential advisory on structural racism as a fundamental driver of health disparities in the country. Uh, so Kaholo Kula, uh, who volunteers for the association's local chapter, says this validates much of uh, what was said in this latest report about the systemic changes necessary for long-lasting improvements to Native Hawaiian health. This is huge because, you know, what we that worked in health disparities for a long time knew is that racism at the highest level, structural racism, which is embedded in our institutions, whether it's intentional or not, it's there. And we need to, we need to change those, those structures that perpetuate inequities in our society and in housing, uh, for example, is another area. As you know, with COVID-19, uh, the, the people most affected, uh, once the moratorium is lifted for uh, putting a hold on evictions due to uh, people's inability to pay their rent, it's going to hit people of color the hardest uh, in the United States. And here in Hawaii, it's going to hit uh, our Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Filipino communities the hardest. But all of these stem back to issues of structural racism. And so in light of that, Kaholo Kula developed a Native Hawaiian framework that's included in the report called Napokihi, which means uh, the corner post, and it's basically uh, identifying guideposts, if you will, that need to be in place or, or need to be strengthened uh, to improve Native Hawaiian health. So I'll give you some examples. It's uh, social justice is one area, healthy diet, uh, environmental stewardship and an indigenous cultural space. And uh, it, it's an interesting take when you look at those historical events and what uh, happened uh, to the Native Hawaiian community on account of those. These areas of social justice, environmental stewardship, uh, really resonate as uh, potential solutions or things that need to be in place if we're also talking about Native Hawaiian health, because it's all integrated in the end. Yeah, but, you know, I think of like, you know, Wainai Koshi, you brought mm -hmm. up about the bike lanes, but there, there's so much good that's going on, you know, with the Wainai Comp and, uh, you know, the, the health centers there, uh, uh, the uh, the Mount Farms, you yeah. know, the, the study that they have with the UH Med School about, I think, epigenetics, yes. I think, right? How to change diet and change attitudes and change lifestyles for the betterment of our people. I think we're seeing a lot of um, studies coming out saying it's all integrated. We need to look at not just health as this clint when you get into the doctor's office, but health when you're at home, when you have physical activity or access uh, to uh, fresh 
produce in the case of Ma'o Farms or an opportunity to take pl- uh, part in environmental stewardship, uh, which was uh, another sort of positive finding of that epigenetic study, if I recall. Yeah, so we have to work on the um, <laughs> on the sidewalks, on getting more beaky <laughs> bikes out there maybe uh, so they can get around. Giving people the opportunity, I think, was uh, sort of a, a theme in here, the opportunity to make the better, uh, healthier choices. Okay. Uh, I'm for that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Kuvehi. That was HBR's Kuvehi Reishi taking a closer look at a new report out on Native Hawaiian health put out by the UH Medical School. You can find her story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, it's that time once again to convene our annual roundtable to review some of the best tech available this holiday season. From iPhones to contactless thermometers, we'll share our picks and ask our experts to fill out your Santa list. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Today's Reality Check features Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Marcel Honoré. He has long been tracking the rail project and joins us to talk about the bids, the numbers that were just released on the project. Good morning, Marcel. Morning, Catherine. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. You know, I had to gasp yesterday when I saw those numbers. Yeah, so these are uh, the the P3 details that we've been waiting for a while. We weren't sure if we were going to get them sooner or later, and fortunately we got them uh, sooner. Uh, but these numbers that were released yesterday do help uh, fill in a lot of the blanks and help us better understand what's been happening with the rail project over the last few months uh, since the, B3, the P3 bids came in and the city and heart have been you know, quarreling, frankly, over whether to continue with it. This gives us all sorts of context behind that debate. Yeah, I mean, I know they, they were... Uh... Someone characterized it as a divorce, you know, uh, between yeah. uh, the city administration and and Hart's uh, CEO, just about not seeing eye to eye on when we should pull the plug on this project. And certainly Andy Robbins was hoping that we would kind of let the process play out before we did anything. Right. He was. And he was so adamant about it. It looks like that might have, you know, it certainly contributed to him uh, not being renewed once his contract uh, ends in the next uh, at, at the end of the year in a couple of weeks. So what basically what came out were the uh, price proposals from the two big private sector teams that were competing to get the uh, public private partnership award. And you know it's it's interesting because on one hand uh, the the P3 deal would have had a, a construction component to it and an operations and maintenance component to it. And on the construction side, maybe people won't be super surprised to hear, but Hart was, was way off as far as what it had budgeted for the last four miles of work. They were off by over a billion dollars. Uh, they had budgeted $1.4 billion. The bids came in at $2.7 billion, of which about $2.3 was construction, and uh, the remaining on the top was the financing that those companies would have needed to way out of out of reach yeah uh on the operations side uh the bids came in uh i want to say it was about four this is to operate the system over a 30-year period and over that 30 years they were talking about spending one one was saying uh based on the bids you would have spent about 4.2 billion over those 30 years and the other one uh was north of five billion and meanwhile, uh, the, the limit that Hart and the city had put on that was $4.9 billion. 
So if you're if you're following along, it basically means that one of those bids, uh, they were looking to have some pretty decent savings over a 30-year period if they were able to lock in that that operations and maintenance proposal. But the problem was the construction side, which was way over budget. Right. So you know, seeing these numbers now and trying to figure out. You know why was Robin so adamant? You know to to uh, to let the process work out because I I mean imagine you know it was kind of like well a bird in hand is worth maybe two in the bush that he wanted that that part of the operating and maintenance you know yeah button down so, right right so Robbins was convinced that there was a way to do a deal where you would lock in that those savings in in O and M. And basically, you would sign a contract, and this is where it gets a little a little weird, but he's saying under state procurement law, you would have been able to sign a contract where you basically certify it for just about $250 million for it, just the first phase, and you structure that contract in a way where you basically agree to continue uh, working as funds become available, and in a way that the city would not, in fact, the you know on the hook for all that you know the the 2.7 billion necessarily uh, but that it would certainly be working towards getting that funding since the project is again over budget you know it's it's based on the assumption that you know that they are going to do everything they can to make it all on the center and so that's how we wanted to do it yeah and and the 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 problematic part I guess is is they just need the land to be able to do the uh, utility work right utility work is key. Yeah, this all really hinges on Dillingham Boulevard. Uh, it's really the, the crux of all of these problems. And, you know, just a, a matter of like a few inches, I'm told, in some places where the, mm. you know, they just didn't have the space. You know, you're talking about you could like, you know, hold out your hands to, to illustrate the amount of space that is that is affecting this and kind of really thrown this, this uh, project off track in terms of budget and schedule. Well, that's a shame, but but uh, we are where we're at. I mean, sadly, the most expensive part and the most complex is left off at the end. Yeah, yeah, it's you know they've 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 come this far, and that's kind of the controversial thing, right? Is they've come here, and they, they but we haven't resolved, uh, you know, this this real uh, this real puzzle. Uh, it's still still to be determined. Okay, and then we do have a. Heart meeting tomorrow, and I guess I'll take up uh, Andy Robbins' contract and then see where we go from here. Yeah, they're they're gonna uh, the HR committee for Heart uh, is going to be talking in closed session about you know uh, the the next steps for leadership. Somebody in the midst of all of this, they're they're going to replace the the executive director for for new leadership. Okay, so. well we know what you'll be doing tomorrow. But thanks, Marcel. Yep. Thanks, Catherine. <laughs> all right, that was reporter Marcel on Ray with today's reality check. To read his ongoing coverage on Rail, visit civilbeat.org. You know, we continue to hear about the adjustments that one essential aspect of our community has had to make with the COVID-19 restrictions. We heard from Dodo Mortuary on the Big Island uh, yesterday. Today, we reached out to Nakamura's Funeral Home on the Valley Isle. We talked to locations manager of Nakamura Mortuary, Tony Munoz, this morning. I was struck looking at your website because you kind of have a timeline in there. You know, in March, when things changed. Talk about yeah. that. You know, this global pandemic kind of hit everybody abruptly as far as the government's reaction to everything. You know, it really changed the landscape of what a traditional service is. Instinctually, people want to hug. People want to give each other kisses and console during a uh, difficult time. And it hit us hard. Restrictions, guidelines, state mandates things like that. So it, it's been a process and a difficult one. Throughout the year, you folks have made entries as things got better and then got worse. And, you know, you had to kind of explain, this is what we're doing. Uh, these are these are the changes we have had to make. Talk about the capacity issue. So that has changed. And, it, you know, it could be month to month. Uh, we initially went down to 10 when everything initially hit. And then we went up to 50. Uh, things were, weren't working that way, and then we went down to where we're currently at, 31 people. We can rotate 10 people. 
outside of that guest list is 31, but it could happen at a day's notice. It's a real adjustment for the families if they're planning services. Definitely, definitely. causes postponements and then the difficult task of telling a family member that they can't stay. How are you doing this drive-through viewing? We do offer drive-through condolences. It's not an actual service. It's just for those people who want to pay their respects by dropping off a card or just simply greeting the family briefly while in their vehicle. It's a roundabout that's set up and come in and briefly come in and pay their respects. You normally have a capacity of a couple of hundred. Normally 200 people and then also use of our lanai for receptions, but to safely place everything within six feet, we're at 31. So how has your staff managed through all of this? How is it hard in regards to staffing? Because a lot of our staff have families of their own. Some of them had to tend to children's needs, online schooling, and then also people's fear. They're concerned for their own health, their family's health. Interacting with families can be a scary thing. Have you had hmm? to lay off staff? Didn't have to lay off. They resigned or left on their own. Made a lot of accommodations to where work from home, you know, tried it. But this really is a physical FaceTime kind of job, I guess. You also have, uh, I think, renovated, uh, modified your facility to include the technical part of it where you stream services, too. It's a free service that we currently offer um, and is needed during COVID. So we have webcasting where we set up a link for families to forward to relatives and friends. It's been something that's been utilized on every service. You know, people are watching in the Philippines, you know, mainland. It's, it's a great service, actually. I'm really thankful that we were able to get that installed before everything hit kind of a staple for the services. So that was just part of your business plan? Yeah. It was something that was needed. We saw a need prior because a lot of people have family out of state. It worked out really well. I was struck also as as I was looking through your website, you know, uh, the obituaries. There are folks that have long ties in the community, sugar workers, hotel workers, postal carriers. You really got a sense of that community. And that shows the effect of COVID, too, is these people were staples in the community and again you want to come out and want to show the family that they made an impact in your life in some way or another they touched your heart and it's changed you know that's not something that you're able to do personally it makes me realize how essential we actually are and despite the stress anxiety and everything that we are all dealing with, we still have to maintain a certain amount of strength and know that we're here to guide and we're here to help ultimately. I don't know if the community always sees it the same way, but we are here to guide, be the liaison, and also make sure that we are following all rules and regulations. Was there anything that you were touched by? You know, being an outpouring of love. Is always a unique situation to each individual. Seeing people lined up outside of the building all the way to our back fence, which, you know, over 100 yards to pay their respects despite of what's in place. It's touching, and it shows how close-knit this community is, and it actually reinforces why we do as funeral arrangers, funeral directors, why we do what we do. And this community in general, it differs from any other. It's beautiful, beautiful thing. Services in general, the way the services are ran, the emphasis on the celebration of life is completely different than, than mainland. You know, kudos, your website, like I said, just I was uh, just reading all those obits over the, you know, for the whole year, and it just really gave me a sense of, of Maui. And I really like that timeline because it really made me stop and reflect about, you know, all those changes. So I hadn't yeah. seen that on anybody else's website. So uh, I thought that was, uh, that was a good thing. But thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate you uh, sharing that because uh, it, it really is interesting to see how different everybody, everybody is. So you do the, the drive through and then the, is it walk up or, or just. Uh, yeah. Currently we can, we can rotate now. So. The drive-through condolences are done primarily at the cemetery, mm-hmm. but people can come in and pay their respects and then and leave after a few minutes. Yeah, you know, hopefully things start to return back to normal soon. 
That was Tony Munoz, locations manager for Nakamura Mortuary in Maui. The company has been serving the community for more than 75 years, and we should note that the funeral restrictions and guidelines for uh, gathering vary from county to county. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute with UH Hilo Professor Patrick Hart. He shares a story of an extinct songbird, Kauai O'o. Like many of our native Hawaiian forest birds, the Kauai O'o is now extinct. A very small population of this species made it into the 1980s in the highest forest near the top of Kauai, when the last known individual was recorded singing its beautiful and haunting song to a mate that no longer existed. The loss of these birds was especially tough because they represent a lineage that had been in Hawaii for millions of years before Kauai even rose out of the ocean. These beautiful birds had rich black plumage with bright yellow tufts of feathers above their legs, which were often important components in the finest Hawaiian featherwork. Kauai o'o fed primarily on nectar of various native flowers, and the causes for their extinction were similar to those for many other native Hawaiian birds and include habitat destruction and introduced predators and disease. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. And this week's Mono Minute was made with recordings from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Uh, you can get that uh, podcast, which is available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your RSS feed. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about how to help protect rare birds and plants at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Will President Trump pardon himself before he leaves office? We look back to Richard Nixon. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. And to the pardon that saved him from criminal prosecution. Do grant a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon for all offenses against the United States. Presidents and pardons on the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Mike Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, owners and managers of office, industrial, and retail properties across the state. A and B, building partnerships in Hawaii for 150 years with a commitment to provide for the needs of island communities. We often hear about the phrase sitting duck. You think of vulnerability, an easy target. That's a position we don't want to be in. And there's a campaign recently launched around the Koloa Iki, a little Hawaiian ducky with a serious message about resilience and climate change. We hear more about the campaign, which is a joint effort of the State Department of Land and Natural Resources, Office of Conservation and Coastal Lands, the Board of Water Supply from various counties, and the University of Hawaii Sea Grant College. We recently sat down to talk to uh, Kauai County Planning Director Kaina Hull and DLNR's Anu Hiddel about new guidance just released today on dealing with sea level rise and the new scrutiny about future development. Here's what you need to know. When you say sea level rise, you think about the ocean and you think about the coast. 
And of course, that is true, but there are impacts inland. And that's something that we're trying to work with in this initiative that we're calling Climate Ready Hawaii, which we've launched last year with the blessing of the state's Climate Change Mitigation and Adaptation Commission to assist Hawaii's agencies and communities adapt and become more resilient to climate impacts, and especially here in this case with sea level rise. So how bad so, is it? What, like, What's the prediction? We're looking at the worst right now, what they've talked about in the extreme scenario. At 2100, you're looking at like over 10 feet of sea level rise, of mean sea level rise. It doesn't mean that every place is going to see that and that that's what's happening exactly. It just, that's the sort of scale of things, right? Well, uh, jump in here, Kine. I mean, from where you sit, you know, what's your concern? We've been getting these projections and this data for some time now and they're officially adopted by the state climate change. And, and there are some areas that look pretty bad. There's some areas that don't look too bad. And, and the data that we were able to get and what's kind of tracked as the sea level rise exposure area, some of those um, scenarios um, that were being mapped out had a lot of people panicking because it showed, you know, all parts of the island underwater and submerged. And, and it, you really have to take some time to delve into what, the, what those projections are. Some of it is, in fact, parts of Hawaii will be in perpetuity underwater in these areas um, within this century. But some of it wasn't. Some of it's also high wave run-up and certain depths of the waves. Some waves you know, might be a foot deep on, on an annual basis. You might get one wave on your property, or you might have passive flooding on some areas. So taking those numbers um, and taking those projections and being able to fold them into a manner in how we can plan for, for at least in my situation, Kuwait's future growth patterns, future built environment areas, and whether it should be kept out of certain areas or whether if it's constructed in certain areas, what type of mitigation and adaptation approaches can you utilize, whether it's you know, building at a higher elevations, building at certain other areas part of the property, and being able to mitigate some of these Im- impacts. Your island got trashed with the major flooding that we saw just a couple of years ago, and I don't even think things are back to normal yet. There's still some properties still trying to recover from that. What we went through with the rains in 2018, it made it acutely aware to a lot of our community members that taking measures to protect ourselves from these type of future impacts is absolutely necessary. Now, you know, some property owners, of course, don't want to get this additional level of scrutiny requirements and in some cases removal of development rights but for the most part you know in order to ensure that our communities are protected with these impacts in in both coastal and as Anu was mentioning inland floodable areas is is becoming uh, I'd say an acceptable discourse that, that's happening here on Kauai. I was with the mayor and some council members and he was signing a series of six ordinances that the council adopted for West Kauai and one of those ordinances actually incorporates specific sea level rise exposure area data that was adopted by the State Climate Change Commission to create the first zoning district that looks at saying these areas are are now subject to exposure from coastal hazards with climate change and additional standards need to be applied whenever they're proposing a project in these areas. So we're taking very specific legal and ordinance level actions to help shore up our island to be able to mitigate or handle climate change and its impacts. Where on the west side? There were areas in Kikaha, in Waimea, and Hanapepe that were identified as susceptible to some form of coastal impacts, be them passive flooding, uh, coastal erosion, or highway runup as generated within the sea level rise exposure area. And those immediately adjacent to the coastline that were to be impacted by one of those three hazards was essentially placed in what's, what we're called, what has been labeled now as the Special Treatment Coastal Edge Zoning District. Okay, and Anu, now this is, you know, we're talking Kauai here, but this message is really to the broader audience across the state. That's right, and it's, so it's a statewide audience, but it's also a multi-partner campaign, and we've involved federal, state, local partners. We've got Board of Water Supply here on Oahu, NOAA, federally and the Climate Commission and many, many friends, non-governmental partners, also community members like Solomon Enos, who created a duck, a koloa iki. Koloa is the native uh, sort of mallard cousin for here in Hawaii. Also, it's endangered. And you might think, you know, a duck as the face of sea level rise. Well, you know, ducks are just going to rise as sea level rises. Well, it doesn't actually like brackish water. And that's what we're finding is that this water is also coming inland. So that's one of the issues we want to bring attention to statewide. So looking not just at coastal erosion and high wave runoff and things like that, but also at inland flooding, 
looking at where is all this water going to go once once it storms you know this is on a regular sunny day when you're seeing this kind of flooding so imagine now what's going to happen when you when you get stormed and then we're also trying to bring this connection it's all through this website which is koloa iki meaning baby koloa.org and it's all into a, a myriad of activities that go into taking action on this issue so things like what Kaina is doing. And I should also add that Kaina Hull is on the state climate commission as director of planning in Kauai County. So all four, all four county planning directors are on the commission. The idea is mm-hmm. that when people go in to apply for a permit, there's going to be a lot more scrutiny because of what we're seeing with climate change. Yes, and I think that's also what you're going to see, you know, just to protect, as you said, people, plants, and pets. Right. So you want to make sure and your your property as well. So you don't want to be building where you, where the water is going to keep flooding and you don't want to build where you've got contamination. And so I mean, we're sort of simplifying the issue here, but there, there are some complicated issues. But but just sort of wanted to show the, the range of activities that are going on. And that's what Koloa is also trying to do is bringing to the, the general public, to educators, to parents, in a time like this where we're all sort of homebound and wondering what to do during the holidays, maybe we have, we've brought some music and some information to people on sea level rise issues and also tying it back to the more science and planning issues. I do think there is a public appetite and, and desire to move towards not just, you know, planning and, and guiding policies on how to approach sea level rise and climate change, but actual hard and fast requirements deal with the, the impacts of climate change that we're dealing with today and, and are projected to in the future. How far it goes, right, you know, a lot of it also remains in the fact that some of it will be removal of property rights. So while the general community may be accepting of it, right, when you deal on an individual property right ownership level, in principle, property owners should understand the, these type of requirements are, are helping to protect and ensure the longevity and livelihood of, of the property itself. But, um, you know, in, in reality, a lot of properties here in, here in all of Hawaii are speculative properties that are held pretty much just for speculative purposes, particularly along the coastline, in which the closer you can get to the ocean, the more that's going to bear on your investment from a from a property speculative aspect. And those are you know, somewhat codified, of course, throughout the United States Constitution property rights. So as we look at things, like one of the things we're looking beyond this coastal edge district that we just adopted is we're contracting to bring in additional scientific review to be able to incorporate sea level rise projections into our shoreline setback ordinance that would push the built environment's setback further away from the coastline depending on that data. And so while we're setting it up, one of the focal points of incorporating that data is ensuring that our ordinances can be upheld against litigative scrutiny. It's not a a matter of of if we're going to get sued on some of these things, we're going to get sued. The property rights and the amount of money that's involved with some of these is is we're inevitably going to end up in court. But we have to make sure that what we're doing is constitutional, there's a nexus to it, and we're able to defend it. We're talking about, I guess, managed retreat in some aspects when when we start planning for what's to come along the coast. Managed retreat comes in in a different set of forms, whether it's, you know, actually pushing and, and requiring property owners to move their structures and their homes further back. I can say we also recently purchased a 400-acre property that's Malka up in the Waimea area. And in order to possibly deal with some of these managed retreat requirements or realities that we're facing is looking at possibly a, a swap-out program for property for property along coastlines. That's still in its infant stages, and a lot of discussion needs to happen with the community. But having those discussions and beginning them now is imperative to, to make sure that in 10 to 15 years we have specific strategies when, when we know some of these properties will be falling into the ocean. Right. So this is kind of a heads up. This is what we're going to have to deal with. Uh, there's going to be trade-offs. We're going to have to bite the bullet. There's just there's no way around it. Yep. Yeah, I'd say that's an apt metaphor. <laughs> I, I would say we've, we've, done a, we've done a lot of work in the past year or two. I think to a certain degree when you're talking about things like resiliency and planning for you know hazardous impact, Kui is particularly, there's a much more, a, a stronger appetite in it than I'd say in some other areas because we've, we've, re- we've been hit with so many disasters. I mean, there are so many people here that still, you know, remember and, and have, have 
have vivid memories of Iniki hitting, and then, of course, the, the 2018 flood. But just that fact that this, these communities here in Kuwait have had to live through these emergencies and these crises before, I, I think it, it, it allows us to be able to have that discussion without immediately getting shut out of the, out of the room. Because we get shut out of the room sometimes when we try to discuss some of these issues. But there is a fair amount of appetite within these communities themselves. Serious issues. You're hoping you get people's attention, Anu, with Kaloa Iki? <laughs> hmm Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think just in, you know, I think that's one of the issues, what Kaina is talking about, and that's obviously it's a huge issue, so we're looking at coastal property. But, again, we're trying to also bring that inland and say there are things happening inland also that people should be paying attention to, and it's not too far off. But also as the holidays roll around, I would say, uh, you know, take a look at what we've got. Uh, We've got art, music, paper dolls, superheroes. I mean, what's not to like? That was Anu Hiddle and Kaina Hall talking about being climate ready. It's tied to an interesting campaign built around a Hawaiian duck and new guidelines to help shape future development. There's a sing-along page on their website where you can find a little Koloa Iki ditty written by Michael and Suzanne McCrary. The public is encouraged to record their version and share it for some interactive fun. Here's Drew Henme from the Hawaii Department of Education singing the Koloa Iki song. Surrounded by the ocean, we see the rising seas. Beaches disappearing in the warm and gentle breeze. I met Koloa Iki, and this she said to me. Let's learn about the climate and the level of the seas. Koloa Iki tells us as she swims in pools so blue. Preserve Aina, this is what you do. Learn about the climate and the rising of the seas. We need to save our islands, our waters, and our trees. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow we take a closer look at a fundraising concert spotlighting the musicians of Kalopapa. Got a story about grieving or isolation that you'd like to share during this time of COVID? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too. Find our archive shows online at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.